He's talking about his ministry in much endurance, and he talked about the sufferings. Three general sufferings, afflictions, hardships, distresses, three specific ones inflicted by others, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, and three more or less voluntary, labors, sleeplessness, hunger, and he continues describing his ministry. So would somebody read 2 Corinthians 6 from 6 to 10? By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet all well known. As dying and behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing it. Wow. He starts, uh, well, he continues, I guess you could say, in six, with eight qualities. Four with a preposition and a single word, and the next four with a preposition and two words. So, in purity, look at your life. Would purity be a good descriptive term? He says, in knowledge, what a key point. One way or the other, he keeps coming back to you. You've got to learn the, the word. You've got to know it. He says, in patience, we lose our temper over what? You know, think about enduring insult and injury without trying to retaliate. He says, in kindness. I don't know. You're looking at all these qualities and, you know, noble qualities, purity and knowledge and patience and kindness. I'm not sure we treasure kindness as that much of a virtue. But how do we treat each other? How kind are we? When you're kind of measuring up, trying to see how how you're doing. Is that one of the things you check off and how am I doing with kindness? interesting Paul put that in this list and then in the Holy Spirit Paul so much saw the Holy Spirit as a key to the Christian life I don't think we give nearly the amount of emphasis that the scriptures do to the Holy Spirit he says in genuine love not surprising he says that right you know can you imagine a list like this without love in it uh, in the word of truth Again, we come back to that point. The fundamental nature of the Word for everything we do. And in the power of God, what Paul did, did not rely on his own strength. You know, this was a God-ordained, God-sustained, God-empowered work. And Paul doesn't forget it, and he doesn't let us forget it. So those are eight qualities and you could spend a sermon on each one of those easily and then he talks about three contrasts when really he talk about the circumstances he labored in he says uh, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left now in the right hand you'd have like the sword or the spear or the offensive weapon the attack weapon and the left the shield the defensive weapon he's fully equipped He's prepared for any onslaught. And then he says, um, by glory and dishonor, 
there's a spiritual glory, there's a glory among the brethren, there's a lot of dishonor among people who, you know, really sought to denigrate Paul and his work. He says, by evil report and good report, think about what would people have said about Paul? Well, some people would have spoken well of him, and some people wouldn't. We care so much about approval and acceptance and respect. Are we willing to endure the evil report? Because that's what it'll be sometimes. And then seven contrasts, almost paradoxes. What Paul looked like versus the reality. So he says, regarded as deceivers and yet true. You know, worldly standards of evaluation are so inadequate. By, by the way the world looked at this, you know, Paul was a deceiver. But the truth is, he was true. What, what to the world is so wrong is in truth so right. And so we're going to have to not care about how the world sees us. They're going to see us as just foolish, you know, misled, if, if, if that good. But, but, he, but the truth is, we're not deceivers. We're uh, true. As unknown yet well known. If you want to gain status in the world, probably being a Christian is not the way to do it. But if you want to be known by the Lord, that's so much better than serve the Lord. As dying yet behold we live. Almost like he's saying, contrary to all expectations. You know, you give the whole context. It's amazing. We're dying and yet actually we're still alive, believe it or not. You know, that shows you the power and grace of God. It's almost a daily miracle that Paul was alive. Really it is. I mean, I don't know whether you would say Paul just had a really strong constitution. Or if you'd say, Paul just had a lot of help from the Lord to survive all he went through. But I really am surprised that one person's body can take everything Paul took. I mean, I would think after that much, you just break down physically. It's amazing that he didn't. And we'll talk about that some more as we keep going. Um, he says, as uh, sorrowful... Uh, am I right there? Uh, yes. As, as punished, yet not put to death. Paul was punished. You know, and yet he survived that. It, it is remarkable because you know that they did kill a lot of Christians. But Paul had survived by God's grace. You know, and he says as sorrowful, uh, yet always rejoicing. You know, there's a lot of things to be sorry about. But there's a lot of things to rejoice in, and they are the greater, weightier things. And so in spite of Paul's sorrow, he had a deep underlying joy as poor, yet making many rich. The apostle Paul was a leather worker, but he made a lot of people rich with something a whole lot better than money. You know, and that's just encouraging. And then, uh, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. You know, Paul didn't really have anything. And yet, Paul had everything. Think about this. People who have the Lord, plus everything else, have no more than the people who just have the Lord. None of the rest really counts for anything. You got the Lord, you got it all. Whatever else you have is really indifferent. 
Having the Lord is it. And so from Paul's perspective, he had nothing. And yet, he was able to enrich. Because what he had was priceless. So think about what being a Christian means. Think about the level of commitment, the willingness to suffer. You know, so often we kind of spend our lives avoiding pain and discomfort, trying to feel better. We just become too self-focused. And I think about the things that really get me down. Things that overwhelm me, the things that discourage me. And I realize I need to toughen up. You know, wow. It's just a constant, you know, motivation to see Paul's life. Thoughts and comments? Brad? Yeah, when you look at Paul's sufferings, and you just think about like how anybody goes through those things, well, he just got done talking about what Jesus had done for him. Reconciliation, and then he begins the chapter with receiving the grace of God. I just see Paul as someone who's just like constantly thinking about God's grace and how that motivated him, like what is certain. And so I think that's something to think about. Amen. Yeah. The grace of God motivated Paul so much he constantly thought about it, and that's that's what we need. You realize that um, I am one of these guys that when I would go to a school classroom for the first day, whatever chair I went to, that was my chair. You guys keep shifting around. I can't figure out who's where. Weird. All right. Yes. You think about this whole section here. Now it's acceptable time, and I probably because I'm in first ambulance and studies, but I just think about David. You know, David was the anointed king, and yet it wasn't acceptable time. He had to go through so much stuff. And so, what is our thought on the acceptable time and, and the treatment that we should have in that time? We we think comfort, peace, and joy, but we forget that. The reward we are looking for is not in the immediate, is it? Yeah. Other thoughts? Right. It's kind of related to what Ben was saying, but there's going to be chapter 1, um, 12 through 16, where Paul's kind of talking about his conversion. Um, and he's saying, well, he thanks Jesus Christ who enabled him. He says, the grace and the love of Jesus was more than abundant. Um, and then verse 14, he says that... Uh, he obtained mercy so that in him first Jesus Christ might show all one suffering as a pattern to those who believe on his everlasting life. It's really humbling to think that if God couldn't make Paul to be what we're reading in chapter 6, he can do that to me. But it's not about how impressive I am. It's about how the grace of God can transform me with all the stuff I made. Okay, so what you see in Paul's life is the product of God's grace and it can work in us and transform us too. Amen. Well, um, Paul becomes more personal, again, with the Corinthians um, in a section that's a little bit odd because he kind of starts out on one theme and then he seems to shift gears completely and they come right back to that theme. That's probably not the way it appears, and we'll look at that. But you really do see a lot of Paul's heart here. So 11 to 13.
so our mouth has spoken freely to you. Paul didn't have any reserve on his part. He had not played his cards close to the chest. You know, he was transparent. He openly shared his feelings and desires and attitudes. Now, you know the challenge for us with being open. It makes you vulnerable. You risk rejection. And he says, our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Now, just how often do you remember Paul using the name of the group? He doesn't do that very often, right? Oh, foolish Galatians. But he was really worried about them in Galatians chapter 3. And he mentions the Philippians in that term in Philippians 4. I think it's about the only times. When he's really emotionally stirred, he personalizes it. But rarely, you know, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. We love you guys so much. You are not restrained by us, but you're restrained in your own affection. If there is a problem in the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, he's saying it's on your side, not mine. You know, he's sort of getting squeezed out of their hearts. He's getting the cold shoulder. Whatever awkwardness and tension there is, hey, it's not for Paul. He loves them. Now, how do you do that? You know, he appeals to them in verse 13. You know, be fair. Open your hearts up to me too. Wow. I mean, we talked about this earlier, but we really come back to it here again. After all he's done for them, with the presence of these intruders, they become sort of standoffish, suspicious, distant. And he just opens his heart more. And beg them to receive him. I mean, when somebody's kind of backing away from you, you're going to go chase them and say, but I love you so much, please love me back. I care about you, here's how I really feel. When they're kind of like, you know, we, we reject to keep from getting being rejected. You know, we close off because they're closing off. Wow. Again, I am so challenged personally by these things. That's such a difficult thing. Just amazed by Paul. I mean, you know, some of the concepts of what love means here are difficult to like talk about in objective terms. This is a very deep concept about love. How much you open up and reach out and 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 open your heart when people are doing the opposite to you. This, so it's just such an encouraging, encouraging thing Paul's doing to them. I mean, this is in real life. He's begging them, please open your heart to us too. Thoughts and comments? Yes, Andrew. Who is the hour Paul. Well, you, you just kind of do that sometimes. Um, you know, I mean, he may have Timothy in mind or others a little bit. It reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 2. <laughs> I really appreciate this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a little while, 
in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Now who's the we there? I, Paul. But, you know, he uses the we. So, for my money, I think he's mostly talking about himself. But, I mean, he may be incorporating Timothy and other brethren who loved him there in that a little bit. But he's mostly talking about himself, I think. Good question. You may disagree. It's possible. Certainly, Timothy would have had the same attitude. So, I wouldn't rule that out. And the closer we are in doing wrong things with unbelievers, the less close we're going to be to the brethren, too. So it kind of goes both ways there, I agree. Okay. So we, we do kind of, it sounds like really jump tracks here, but I think we'll see uh, some connection. Verse 14 to 7 1. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with the light? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will... 7-1? Yeah. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So is their involvement in these sinful activities with unbelievers, is that one of the things that have closed them off to Paul? You know, are they really going to be close and open with Paul only when they make a total break with paganism? I mean, I can see that their compromises could leave them with an uneasy conscience. And boy, that makes you really shut off and close up and you don't want people to really know you. So it's almost like Paul saying, open your hearts to us and not to them. That's my attempt at making a connection. If you want to make a different one, that's fine. Um, but he said, don't be bound together with unbelievers. And then he asked these rhetorical questions like, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What would be the right answer to that question? None. What fellowship has light with darkness? You know, have, have you ever seen like these diagrams where you have like two circles and like there's the part of, that's in both circles and then there's a part that's only in one and not the other. So if you make those diagrams, you have light and darkness. How much overlap would you have between the light and the darkness? None! That's, that, those are total opposites. You know, there's no light and darkness, there's no darkness and light. 
Or uh, what harmony has Christ with, with Satan? What would be the answer to that? Zero. What does a believer have in the gospel of the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So, they're not. Now, there's some controversial things about this passage. So I want to present what I think this can't be talking about. Uh, and I base this on 1 Corinthians. I do not believe Paul is talking about social interaction with non- non-believers. That's 1 Corinthians 5. You remember where Paul had written them previously not to associate with, with the wicked people. He said, I don't mean the wicked people of this world. You'd have to leave the world if you're going to associate with any wicked person in the world. I mean any so-called brother who's an adulterer, fornicator, whatever. So Paul clarified in 1 Corinthians 5 that he didn't mean you couldn't have social association with non-Christians. I mean, he sets up a scenario in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27, where you go to a non-believer's house, a a non-Christian's house, to like have dinner. And he, he doesn't have any objection to that. Jesus ate with the publicans and the sinners. And he said, you know, what's a doctor who won't see sick people? So, I don't think he's saying, don't have any social interaction with people who don't serve the Lord. I don't believe he's saying, don't let an unbeliever enter your worship service. Because he sets up that scenario scenario in 1 Corinthians 14, about 22 to 25, where he envisions a non-believer coming in and being convicted by someone prophesying. So he, he sets up the idea that it's fine for a non-believer to be in the worship service. And I do not believe in this passage that it's proper to apply it to a marriage bond. Because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said that if the unbeliever is content to dwell with the believer, then the believer ought to, to stay with him. They should not initiate the separation. And yet, whatever he's talking about here, you have to separate. You cannot stay with him. You cannot, if, if the believer uh, has some, uh, is doing this with the unbeliever, it has to stop. You know, so whatever he says here, you have to come out from their midst and be separate and don't touch it. So he's not talking about marriage. I don't think it's a good idea in most cases for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And I don't think a strong Christian would normally want to. But I do not believe that's what this pastor is talking about. He can't. Because it would mean that he contradicts what he said in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, stay, and here he says, come out and be separate, don't touch it. So, I don't think he's talking about any of those things, so what in the world is he talking about? I believe he's talking about joining with unbelievers in sinful behavior. We should not, in any sense... Be joined in sinful activities with with unbelievers. The not being equally yoked, don't be bound together with unbelievers is the idea that 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 doesn't fit. It's not a compatible grouping. So I should not join with any unbeliever in any sinful practice. They have nothing in common. The 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 Christian who is a house of God is not a place for idols. You know, there shouldn't be any mixing of of paganism and Christianity, of wickedness and righteousness. 
There must be an absolute separation. And he gives the promises that if they'll do that, then he'll be present with them, verse 16. He'll welcome them, verse 17. He'll be their father, verse 18. And so he emphasized in 7.1, therefore having these promises, God, God's promised blessings in 16 to 18. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. He's calling us to holy living. To get rid of all the wickedness. And to want to be close to Him only. You know, no part of my physical or emotional being should be impure. I've got to get rid of everything that defiles me. Now, so so think about this. In your life, what things defile your flesh and spirit? What things are you doing that you have no business doing if you want to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God? It's a strong exhortation to purify our life and purge out the things that have no business there because they're wicked and I have no relationship with those things. Thoughts and comments? Eric. Could be. Could be. You've also got the background in First Corinthians eight through ten of sharing an idol feast. That would be another possible application. But yeah, I think that could be. Other questions or comments? Yes. I like the point that you made on verse 14 about not being planning to give together with unbelievers. There's a lot of Christians that use that passage uh, in regards to marriage. It's like you had said about verse 27, about the passage of Christians being married but those who are not. There's a good reason why it's in there. Because uh, it shows that you know, God doesn't necessarily encourage it, but He permits it. And if He didn't permit it, I would imagine we'd have a serious problem in the church with Christians being married to each other, but may not necessarily be compatible for each other. I don't know about all that. I'm certainly not trying to promote Christians being married to non-Christians, but it's not a sinful relationship inherently. And if it were, we'd have to leave it. And so, because whatever He's talking about here. It's like, well, you know, can there be a little bit of intersection then with light and darkness? No. None. Complete separation. No involvement in sinful activities with non-Christians. So if I'm married to a non-Christian, I can't join with them in doing anything that's wrong. I think that would be the application.
Yeah. Don't be mismated, you know, by joining together with wicked people and sinful activity. don't want to be encouraging sinful practices, be an accomplice, accomplice, be a supporter. Good points. Agreed. Other thoughts? Yes. You think about the priest when Hezekiah came into his reign, they cleaned the temple, they began cleaning from the inside and worked their way out. We're purifying ourselves and we are the temple of God. You know, start with our inner selves. Absolutely. We need to, to long for purity. Our God is pure. We need to be pure in heart and pure in mind. And, you know, I know, I mean, a lot of guys struggle with sexual impurity. And I've used this illustration, but this is a new audience, at least some of you are. Think about this. I spent some time several years ago talking to a young man he was 22 and he had a lot of issues one of his big issues was pornography to the extreme and he was going to a church called itself a church of Christ and uh, he was very remorsefully telling me that he was sitting on the pew in the church building between Bible class and services and was so much in the habit that he found himself on his cell phone looking at pornography in the church building between the Bible class and worship service. If it matters, he was going to be helping pass out the emblems that morning. And when he caught himself and realized what he was doing, it just horrified him. And he took out his battery and gave it to one of the deacons so he couldn't have his cell phone. That sounds pretty gross, doesn't it? Can you imagine doing that? I mean, really? In the church building, between Bible class and worship, you're looking at garbage on on the internet, on your phone. But we know that the temple of God is me. It sounds bad to be doing that in the church building, right between Bible study and worship, Why doesn't it sound bad to be doing that in God's house where he's trying to live and he just hates that kind of impurity? It's totally against everything he says. You know, can you imagine? I don't know. What do you think about this? You're married and you put up all around your house all these pictures of these actresses that are on the internet. You know, displaying themselves for your wife to look at. Don't think she'd like that very well, right? It'd be just such a just such a way of, of just despising her and just just trashing her by doing that. But but God dwells in us, and He hates that impurity. 
it ought to just be revolting to us. And there may be some of us who just need to take the batteries out of whatever, or smash it, or whatever we have to do to get rid of it, because we don't want any part of that. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, we can only do those things. We can only overcome in God's strength. So it's going to be something you're going to have so much willpower, you're just going to make yourself change. It's going to depend on the Lord. And it's going to depend on filling yourself up with the Lord, because Satan loves a void, a vacuum. And it's going to depend on using the blessings God has given our brethren to help us. Part of the reason we struggle so much with some of these sins is we hide them so much. We can do them without anybody knowing about it, and we do everything we can to make sure they don't. God gave us our brethren to edify us and, and, and admonish us, exhort us day after day, so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews 3.13. Thoughts and comments? Yes. Okay, does this have anything to do with a Christian and non-Christian being in a business partnership? Not inherently. I think it's okay to be in a business partnership with a non-Christian, but it could. If in that partnership we are engaged in unethical, dishonest practices or whatever, then yes, I mean, that could be an issue. Uh, I've known people in those kinds of situations where they were in a business where the non-Christians in the business were doing unethical things, and they had to put their name on those documents that were falsifying tax information or whatever. So we can't be doing wrong things or endorsing wrong things, but I don't think it's inherently wrong to be in a business partnership with non-Christians. Okay. All right, 2 to 4, we're in chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. 